0: You're listening to the teaching podcast of the Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. I heard someone say years ago that when we sing together in corporate worship, It's not a leg-stretching exercise to get ready for the big game that is the sermon. But when we sing together in corporate worship, it's actually the beginning of the sermon. It's the part of the sermon where we preach back to God, we preach to one another, and we preach to ourselves what is most true, which is the gospel of Jesus. So thank you, Luke and Ben, for leading us. The sermon's already started. We could probably take communion and go home if you guys wanted to. But you're going to have to listen to me for a little while, so before we do that. So, um, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be here with you. If you're a guest um, watching online or with us, I want to especially welcome you on behalf of the members and the pastors. And if that's you and you're watching online, uh, you should see a, um, a link that we're dropping in the comment section, a little connect link, and I want to encourage you to click that, fill it out, give us a little bit of information about yourself. If you're a guest in this room, in the in the pocket of the chair right in front of you, um, there is a connect card in that little pocket. And I just want to ask you to take that, fill it out. Um, you can leave it in your seat or you can place it in the giving box there on your way out. Um, It just gives us a record of your visit and helps us know how to love you and serve you to the best of our ability. And let me say this, let me me give you a little commercial here before we dive into our text. If you are new or if you've been around for a while and and you've never taken our membership class, which is called Basics, if you're interested in becoming a member um, of the Crossing Church and partnering with us to carry out the vision that God has given us to see God's kingdom come and as will be done in Northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven, if you're interested in partnering with us to do that in an official manner, we have our Basics class next Sunday Sunday, a week from today, right after the second service. I believe we'll have it in this room for social distancing purposes. Um, this, is a, this is a class. Let me just be clear about this. Um, if you want to become a member of our church, you have to take this class. But if you take this class, it doesn't mean you have to become a member, if that makes sense. But it's a class taught by our pastors. We're going to talk about who we are, why we exist, and what it means uh, to be a member of, of what Jesus is doing here and be a member of his body. So we would love for you to come uh, to that. We have child care in place. We will also feed you lunch. But you have to register. That's the key. So um, you can do that by going to crossingparagoldcom forward slash membership. And we may have a graphic we can throw up there at some point. Um, but anyway, if you have questions about that, come talk to me. Email me or find Jared or Luke or Bill or Robert. Or, there it is. Any of our staff would be able to help you uh, with that. We would love to see you. That's next week, right after the second service. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, as we continue in our series through the book of Daniel. And in this series, we're just talking about what does it look like to live as faithful disciples of Jesus, and what does it look like to thrive in a culture like Babylon that is hostile to the way of Jesus. And today, we're looking at Daniel chapter 2. As always, if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can get all of today's teaching notes there, and you can follow along if you'd like. And uh, before we dive into this text, I just want to pray one more time for our time together. So would you join me, and let's go to the Father, and let's just pray. So, Father, I, I just um, stop for a moment before I go any further and just acknowledge um, that everything we've done today, from our waking up to our getting dressed to our warming up the car, to our driving here, to our singing, has all been done in your presence. And In fact, I just want to acknowledge before you that all of our life, all of our thoughts, all of the motivations of our hearts and our dreams and desires and disappointments and pet sins and hurts and longings and desires is all revealed before your presence. You see everything. And so I pray that this morning you would see us um, where we are and knowing exactly what you know about every single human heart in this room or watching online, that you would reveal the real risen presence of Jesus in exactly the way that we need to encounter Him this morning. Um, I love, it's the same prayer that I woke up with, but I love what Jared prayed over the band and over me this morning, just that you know, I think I think the windchill was negative eight when I left the house this morning, and just that you would warm us um, with the, 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 the truth of your love for us in Christ, and that you would melt our hearts and help us to receive all that you are for us in Jesus, and help us to step into this story that you've placed us in. It's your story, and you've placed us here for such a time as this. And, Help us to step into what it is you're calling us to do. Give us the faith and the courage that we see that you put in Daniel. And help us to lean into um, the direction that you're pointing and the way that you're leading us. Jesus, you're the king. You're the king of this whole story. We, we just want to obey you. We want to love you. And we can do that because the good news is you've loved us first. So meet us where we are. I pray in Christ's name and for his glory. And all of God's people said? Amen. Mm-hmm. I agree. Amen. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is known uh, as one of the most wild, unstable, and violent uh, kings in human history. Um, Eventually, his bloodlust and his thirst for power drove him completely mad. So here he is. I think we have him depicted here. This is him depicted in a famous print by William Blake um that is based on uh Daniel chapter 4 verse 33 and what you read in Daniel 4:33 is you see this picture painted of King Nebuchadnezzar crawling around on all fours naked like an animal and we're told quote that uh, he ate grass like an ox he grew uh uh hair like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird so this is a pretty unstable guy that we're talking about here and what's scary about that guy is that that guy was the king of Babylon, uh, which during the time of his reign was the world superpower, which means that guy was the most powerful guy on planet Earth during his reign. Which means that anytime he wants to, he can cross over your borders and storm into your nation, overthrow your government, steal all your resources, kill all your men, have his way with all your women, leave your children orphans in the streets. And then if there are any survivors, he'll just kidnap you and take you back to Babylon where you'll spend the rest of your life working as a slave. And tragically, the reason I share that with you is because this is exactly the situation that Daniel and his friends find themselves in. This is the context for the book of Daniel. In 597 BC, King Babylon, King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and his army roll into Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. They sack the capital city of Jerusalem and they utterly destroy everything. We're even told that they loot and burn the temple of the Lord to the ground, which is unfathomable to a Jewish mind in the ancient world. How in the, how in the world does that even happen? And you can read all about this in Lamentations or Second or Kings 25, I think. And it's just, I mean, it is absolutely brutal. And so um, you've, got, you've got the Israelites just laid to waste by Nebuchadnezzar. And what survivors are left, he and his army kidnapped them. And these guys have been relocated in Babylon. And they've been forced to assimilate into Babylonian culture. And that's the situation Daniel and his friends are facing. And the whole reason that God has given us this story of Daniel is to teach us what it looks like to remain faithful and to flourish as God's people in a a place that's not our home, in a place like Babylon with systems and with a culture and with values that push against us and, and pressure us to abandon faithfulness to God, to rebel against his kingdom, and to be formed into the way of the world. This is the situation that Daniel and the Israelites are facing. And as pastors, this, this is our burden. This is, why we want to, this is why we want to teach through the book of Daniel. As pastors, the parallel we want you to see from Daniel is that to be a disciple of Jesus in America, especially in this cultural moment, is to live as an exile. It's, it's to live in a Babylonian-like culture, which, by the way, has never been our ultimate home. You go read the scriptures and we're called citizens of heaven like, this place, eventually home is coming here, home is going to be here eventually, but like, in, in, this, in this moment, where we are in the redemptive story of human history, we're displaced. So in a sense, don't get too comfortable here, and don't put your hope in like, too much into a political party, because this ain't your kingdom, right? This is, not, this is not home. So we are, in a sense, exiles, and now, more than ever before, in, in the history of our culture, we live in a culture that has shifted. And, and, and normalized values and beliefs and practices that are fundamentally directly opposed to the way of Jesus. That's why the story of Daniel is so powerful. Because we see how Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is their Babylonian names, I can't pronounce their Hebrew names, um, are able to stand faithful in the midst of, of that kind of cultural pressure. And... This is what I want us to focus on in Daniel chapter two. It's not just that they resist. Okay, this is what's fascinating. This is what we're going to see in this passage. It's not just that Daniel and his friends are, are modeling for us how to resist the influence of the culture and and the pull of the culture, but we actually see them embracing that God has strategically placed them to have an influence in the culture themselves, to be a, to be a redemptive influence on the culture. And Daniel's really a model for us on how to engage the culture because I, and this is a this is a really important conversation that we need to have because i think most christians myself included for most of my time following jesus on earth um, don't know how to engage and interact with the culture that we live in in a healthy way i think jerry talked about this last week but there are basically two broken ways that we tend to try to engage with the culture and one is if the culture is going to push against me i'll just pull away so if the culture is going to push against me I'll grab my Christian friends and we'll just retreat into a holy huddle. We'll sit back and play armchair quarterback and lob critiques and condemnations against the world, but we won't have anything to do with it. Well, that ain't the way of Jesus. So the, uh, that's one way that we're tempted to deal with the culture. The other way is, if the culture's going to push against me, I won't retreat. I'll just give in. Right? It's like Jared said last week, if you can't beat them, join them. So I'll just go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing. Both of those two approaches are broken. Both of those two approaches are contrary to the way of Jesus. So the question we have to ask from Daniel, too, particularly this morning, is how do we as disciples of Jesus not retreat or cave against the pressure, but how do we see ourselves strategically placed by God in this cultural moment of history to be a redemptive influence? Did you know that God has you right where he, he has you where He wants you in this very moment? in the places and around the people, and the context. He has you placed right where he wants you to make an eternal impact for his kingdom. It's all on purpose. None of it's on accident. Like he has you right where he wants you to to be a redemptive influence. And we're going to learn from Daniel and his friends what that looks like, okay? So uh, to help us, we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 2. And this is one of the longest chapters in the book. So to cover the whole chapter, I'm just going to summarize the story. I'll point out some key verses and then I'll draw some implications for us. Can we do that? All right, get ready, buckle up, because this is a crazy story. And I'm going to summarize it. We'll pinpoint a few verses along the way. But here goes the story, okay? So put yourself, turn on your imaginations like you're watching a movie, and I want you to put yourself inside this story, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep one night, and the guy has a bad dream. Anybody ever have, have a bad, disturbing dream? He has a bad dream. It's so disturbing that he wakes up and he can't go back to sleep. He's very troubled by this dream, and he wants somebody to interpret it for him right now. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is in the middle of the night, he calls for the wise men of Babylon. This is, uh, we're told these are the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he brings all these guys into his court, into his room, like his bedroom in the middle of the night. And he says, I want you guys to interpret my dream for me. Tell me what this means. No problem, they say happy to help you, O king. Just tell us what your dream was, and then we'll we'll give you the interpretation, which seems pretty logical to me. If you come to me and you say, Adam, I had this crazy dream. I want you to help me interpret it. My first question is going to be, well, cool. What's the dream? Tell me what you dreamed. Nebuchadnezzar has a very different response to this. No, 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 he says. That's not going to work for me. He says, if you guys are legit wise men and you have supernatural knowledge, you tell me what I dreamed. And then I'll give you the interpretation. I don't, want, I don't want to be played, he says. Like, I'm not going to give you the dream, and then you're just going to make up an interpretation that fits on the spot. You tell me what I dreamed, and then you tell me the interpretation of what I dreamed. And the wise men, confused and afraid, respond to the king, "Uh, we can't do that. Like, we're not going to be able to do that for you. And here's how Nebuchadnezzar reacts to being told no. Remember, he's a pretty unstable guy, okay? He says this in verse 5. Here's a, well, maybe we can put this one on the screen. This is a direct line from verse 5. This is what I have firmly decided, Nebuchadnezzar says. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces, and your house is turned into piles of rubber. Rubble, not rubber. <laughs> uh, for the record, not rubber. It's a Hebrew word for rubble. Uh, I don't know what the Hebrew word is, but it doesn't mean rubber. It means rubble. So if you guys don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'm going to chop you up and I'm going to destroy your houses with your families in them. However, if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So I'm going to say it one more time. Tell me the dream and interpret it for me. It's just a little ultimatum, right? Just a little mob boss. Throwing a tantrum, just a little ultimatum. As you can imagine, the wise men just begin to squirm and meander, don't know what to do, and in verse 10 they finally say this to the king. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. Check out their theology. The gods don't care. The gods don't live among humans. They 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 don't give a rip, so they're not going to be of any help. And so the wise men say basically to the king, we can't do this, this is impossible. And Nebuchadnezzar does not like what he's hearing. This is not a guy that is is used to being told no, or he's not used to being told we can't do that, that's impossible, he'd be a very hard guy to work for, or do life with. He doesn't like what he's hearing, so he becomes so angry and so furious, he issues a decree that says, if you're telling me there's not a single wise guy in Babylon that can do what I'm asking, then we'll just kill every wise man in Babylon. And he gives an official decree to the commander of his army, go out and slaughter all the wise men in the province of Babylon off with their heads. And this is the point in the story when you realize Daniel and his friends are in trouble. Because we saw last week in chapter 1, God had given Daniel and his friends special knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And Nebuchadnezzar took notice of that. So he recruited these guys and hired them to be wise men in the king's service. They've been drafted into the king's service as wise men. So that means if Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all the wise men, he's going to kill Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego too. So what happens next? Well, in a very bold move, Daniel stops the commander of the king's army, who's just been commissioned to go and kill him. So think about that. This guy's coming to find you to kill you. And Daniel goes and finds him. And says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Puts his arms out and says, listen, let's not do this. Please don't do this. Just let me talk to the king. It's an extremely courageous move. This is a Jewish teenager boy, by the way. Let Let me go talk to the king. And so Daniel is granted permission. He goes before the king and he says, give me some time, just give me some time, give me a day maybe, and just let me me pray, let me see if I can come back and I can tell you your dream and I can tell you what it means. And for whatever reason, the king decides to give Daniel a shot. So Daniel goes back to his friends. They begin to pray and plead for God to have mercy, to tell them this dream, and God hears and God answers their prayer, we see in verse 19. And gives Daniel the dream. And he gives Daniel this powerful vision of what the dream means. And So Daniel breaks out into praise. He praises God. Then he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar. And when Daniel walks in the room, Nebuchadnezzar looks at him and he says, All right, can you tell me what I dreamed? Don't give me the interpretation. Give me the dream, Daniel. Can you tell me what I dreamed? And I love Daniel's response in verse 27. Because he agrees with all the other wise men. Daniel replied, No, I can't tell you what you dreamed so bold like he, so bold no wise man enchanter magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about but there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries daniel says he has shown king nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come and then daniel proceeds to open his mouth and he tells king nebuchadnezzar exactly what he dreamed which is a huge act of faith, by the way, because he doesn't know if what he's heard from God is actually what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. He could have gotten it wrong. He could have missed a detail and just off with his head. But he walks in, he says, in, in faith, he says, this is what you dreamed. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he dreams. Then he gives them the interpretation. And look how Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 46. And we're going to come back to the dream and the interpretation a little later. But look at how Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 46. He falls on his face, he honors Daniel, and he praises Daniel's God. He says, surely, quote, Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. And then he gives Daniel a promotion. And this is what we're going to focus on. Verse 48, He says, it says, He made Daniel ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Daniel's now running the school of Babylon. And he's overseeing the whole, the whole kingdom. In verse 49, moreover, Daniel's first request, his first order of business, is he appoints his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And that's how Daniel chapter 2 comes to an end. It starts with this very unstable, violent king throwing a tantrum. He's going to murder everybody. And then he's going to kill Daniel and his friends. They're going to lose their lives. But then it ends in a dramatic turn of events with Daniel and his friends being placed as rulers over the entire kingdom of Babylon. Now, here's what I want you to notice, okay? that's what I want to focus on. God takes these four young teenage Jewish boys and he places them in a culture that's trying to eat their lunch. I mean, all day they're, they're being trained... To think differently, live differently, dress differently, have a different theology, embrace, embrace a whole different way of life. This culture is having a powerful influence over them and trying to form and shape them into its own image. And then in a dramatic reversal and turn of events, these guys end up ruling over all of Babylon and they're now in a position to have a dramatic influence over the culture. The culture that's been trying to influence and pull them, they now have an influence over the culture to shape it and form it into the image of God and his kingdom. And if you're listening to all of this and you're wondering, like, what is, okay, well, that's, that's cool, but, like, what in the world does Daniel 2 and all this have to do with me? The answer is it has everything to do with you if you're a disciple of Jesus. Because here's the key takeaway, and I'm, I'm, I'm beating a little bit of a dead horse, but here's the key. Here's the takeaway. Daniel 2 is a story about how in every cultural moment, God is doing the same thing. In every cultural moment, God strategically places and positions his people to live as faithful exiles who not only resist the pull of the culture, but who press in to make a redemptive dent in the culture. God is always in the business of, of strategically positioning his people to provide influence and leadership in the culture for the sake of his kingdom. I love, uh, I love how God says it to his people in Jeremiah 29.7. I'll put it on the screen. Notice this is a command. It applies to us as well. He says, quote, Seek the peace and prosperity. Seek the shalom and the flourishing of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Notice God says, I have positioned you here in this place. So pray to the Lord for that people in that place because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, the reason why you're here, the reason why the Crossing Church exists in northeast Arkansas in 2021 in this cultural moment is to put a redemptive dent in the culture. God has placed us here in this day and age to actually be an influence on a culture that's trying to influence us and to be a part of what he's doing to pull all of history into the the time when his kingdom is fully established and flourishing on earth. Is this making sense? This is why you exist. This is why you're here. This is why God has positioned us where he has us. And it's it's not just something he was up to back then, like he's doing the same thing now in Northeast Arkansas in 2021. So if all that's true, and it is, here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. What are those areas of influence for you? So write this question down if you're a note taker, okay? Where has God strategically placed and positioned me to be a redemptive influence and make an eternal impact for his kingdom? Where has God strategically placed and positioned you to be a redemptive influence and to make an eternal impact for his kingdom? And let me just shepherd us for just a second before we answer that, because I think we need some help uh, thinking about this. If you're anything like me, a part of you looks at Daniel too, and a part of you looks at that question, and you're thinking, well, I'll never be able to make an impact like Daniel. Because you know God made him ruler over a whole kingdom, and I'm not the ruler of anything. I can barely get my kids to obey my orders. Uh, nobody listens to me. So how am I supposed to make this massive impact and be this huge influence like Daniel? And to that, I'll say two things quickly. The first one is this. We learn on the first page and on the last page of the Bible that human beings were made to rule with God. So if you're in Christ, we're told it's a step even further. You're a royal priesthood. This is who you are. You're a co-heir with Jesus, which means the whole kingdom of God belongs to you, which means you were made to rule, which means you were made for influence. And if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God, which means you have everything you need to do this. God has actually wired you to rule like Daniel, and he's made you for influence, and he's called you to have influence for the sake of his kingdom. The second thing I want to say to this is we live in a culture, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking, yeah, but I'll never be able to make a big impact, like I'll never, I'll never be the ruler over a whole like land, like I'm never going to be able to, how am I going to make a huge influence? Well, there's some brokenness in that way of thinking. So we live in a culture obsessed with greatness. Addicted to being the best, we want to be bigger, faster, stronger, better than everybody else in the world. And there's a ton of cultural pressure put on you, whether you're able to name it or not, that says that if you're not extraordinary, you're nobody, and you don't matter. And tragically, this way of thinking and being has made its way into the church. And in his book, Ordinary, uh, Michael Horton says, quote, here's a quote, More than ever before, Christians are burned out and weary with the cult of extraordinariness. And what he's saying is, it's this idea of go big or go home. Like if I can't be a ruler or have a platform like Daniel, I'll never make a difference in anybody's life. God, God doesn't want to use me to build his kingdom. He doesn't want to use me to share the gospel with anyone or to make some sort of eternal impact because I'm, no, I'm nobody. Like I'm just, I just work on a line or I'm just a pastor or I'm just a stay-at-home mom or I'm just like, there's, listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the way of Jesus, in fact, because everything about the way of Jesus and the way he came and established his kingdom was ordinary and unimpressive. The kingdom of God comes like a mustard seed, not a mountain, right? It's a very unimpressive type of reality. And this is what Michael Horton goes on to say in his book. We'll put this on the screen. Here's a direct quote, and then we'll move into some application. My concern, he says, is that the activist impulse at the heart of evangelicalism can put an enormous burden on people to do big things when what we need most right now is to do ordinary things better. (laughs) I love that, man. We can miss God in the daily stuff looking for our extraordinary moment to shine. By the way, do you know that's not what Daniel was looking for? He was being ordinary. Okay, the bottom of my life's falling out, so I'm going to go get with my friends and pray. Nothing's more ordinary. He wasn't looking for a moment to shine than God gave him one. He was just being an ordinary dude, and God did what he was going to do with Daniel. So what we need most right now is to do ordinary things better. We can miss God in the daily stuff looking for our extraordinary moment to shine. Listen to this. If we were more serious about being faithful in the ordinary, I'm convinced the church would have a much stronger witness, i.e., we would make a much bigger impact in the world today. What Horton is not saying is that if you want to do big things for God and you want to make a huge impact for God, that those are wrong desires. Those are beautiful desires, and you should run after those. I want to make a big difference. I want to make a big impact. But what he's saying is if you really want to make an extraordinary kingdom impact, be faithful to God in the ordinary. That's all Daniel and his friends were trying to do. They had a new ordinary and a new normal, and they're trying to serve God in that context as best as they can. So with that in mind, let's come back to our question. Where has God placed you and given you influence? And for most of us, there are really three basic, ordinary areas of everyday life where God's placed us to have a a redemptive influence in the home, at work, and in relationships. Let me say a brief word about each of these, um, and then we'll come back and we'll anchor everything in this vision that God has given Daniel. So, Three basic, ordinary areas where you can where you can function like Daniel and, you, and God is calling you to be a redemptive influence. The first and primary place where God has given you influence is in the home. So let's talk about that for a second. In the home. The place where you go to sleep every night. The place where you wake up every day. Uh, the family and the people that you live with and are building a life with. This is the primary context where God's calling you to be a redemptive influence. And um, if you're like me... Parents, uh, you have kids in the home, please don't miss this. Uh, Your home, your kids, is the primary context where God's given you power and influence for good, for the gospel, for his glory, for his kingdom. That's your primary mission field. That's the primary place where you're called to make disciples and build the kingdom of God. Um, In their book, Raising Passionate Followers of Jesus, uh, Phil and Diane Comer say it like this. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth the read. Um, they say this, and by the way, let me say this, parents, we're, we're we're never too old to honor our kids, our, our our kids, kids, adult kids in the room. Like me, we're never too old to honor our parents, right? That's a biblical command to honor your mother and father. And there's no, there's no age limit. Like you don't have to do that till you are 21 and then you can dishonor them. The same is true on the other side. Parents, it's never too late to start parenting your children. I just want you to know that even when they're adults, it's never too late for you to start discipling them. So when you read this quote, I want you to think about it with with that in mind, okay? There's no shame here. We've all failed. I just want you to think about the grace God has given you to to, to start anew right now with your kids, okay? Um, Here's what they say, quote, somewhere along the way, the truth began to dawn on us that Christian parents do not automatically spawn Christian kids. We discovered that most often when kids were all out following Jesus, their parents were as well. And they had intentionally set out to do whatever it took to nurture and train and teach and love their children toward God. The strong faith of those kids was no accident. And therefore, I love this, may this be true of us. Therefore, with audacious faith, audacious faith, we ask God to use us to become the matriarch and patriarch of generations of comers who would follow hard after Jesus. This vision has guided every decision we made. Every move, every sacrifice, our vacations, the way we spent our money, where we went to church, where we worked, how we lived, everything come under the scrutiny of this question. Will this help our children draw closer to Jesus or possibly push them away? Will this make disciples or create disinterested rebels? Let me just stop and say that I I stink at this, but, but... let me just, I have not figured this out, but you know what keeps me going is just the idea that God is so gracious that he will use my failing forward at this and he will use my best efforts. And what might he do if we approach the discipleship of our children's like this, like that? What might he do if you, if you went home today and you woke up tomorrow saying, this is my mission field. Like you want to talk about having an eternal impact and, and being a redemptive influence, it's right under your nose. You don't have to look for the most extraordinary opportunity. Just look at the ordinary. Like, it's, it's, it's right there under your nose in the home. They actually argue in this book that during the child-rearing years, at least, this is the number one calling on moms and dads, to disciple and influence their kids toward Jesus. Why? Why? cuz you go because the bible says so. Okay, that's why. Cuz you go back to Genesis 1 and God's plan A all along has always been to multiply his presence and his influence throughout the earth through families. The Comers say it like this. Here's another quote. This is our duty. God's plan A for evangelism. Each mom and dad making disciples of their own children is God's original primary way of bringing the world back to himself. This is the way he commanded the Israelites to live out their faith. And, and of course, they're alluding to Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9, where God gives us a picture of what this looks like. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 6. "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Uh, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts.'" Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let me ask you a question. Who is God talking to specifically when he says, impress this on your children? Who's he talking to? Give me some feedback. Talking to, yeah. Yeah. He's talking to parents. He's not talking to student pastors about your kids or my kids. He's not talking to crossing kids workers. He's not talking to MC hosts. He's talking to parents. And he says to parents, don't outsource this. You want to be an influence? You want to make an impact? Here you go. I'm going to give you some little demons to shepherd. And you're going to, you're going to make an impact and an influence on their little demon hearts. Right? And you're going to parent the hell right out of them. Right? So that's that's... That's your job, is to parent the hell out of your children. Somebody tweet that, please. <laughs> that wasn't even in my notes. That just came out. I don't know. That's just on a coffee mug. Get that on a t-shirt or something. But that's, that's your job. He's, he's talking to parents. He says this. Look, check, check it out. Humans, God says this in Deuteronomy 6, humans were made to, to, to love me with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to receive my love to be in communion with me, to love and trust me, and to know that I love them. That's what humans are made for. Now, parents, drive that into the hearts of your children. That's Deuteronomy 6. That's kingdom influence. And by the way, I'm just trying to find a faithful way to apply what we see in Daniel. This is the best way I know how to do it. It's all about kingdom influence. God is not saying, by the way, that the pressure is on us to convert our kids. Amen? That's pretty good news. Listen, you can do everything right theoretically, and your children still have to make their own decision to follow Jesus. So listen to me carefully. The pressure is not on you to force that decision, but as parents, we are called to influence that decision. God has given us incredible influence with our kids. How are we stewarding that? Let me just give you three things that Carrie and I are failing at every day, okay? I'm going to be really quick on this, and on the rest of this, it'll be even quicker, but three Three, th- three things we are learning and failing at and growing in in our own parenting journey. And it's just stuff you see right here in Deuteronomy 6, okay? Number one, it starts with leading ourselves. If you want to be a redemptive influence in the home, um, you want to influence your kids to grow up and be passionate followers of Jesus, you can't lead them to a place where you're not going. You can't lead them to a place where you're not going. You can't give them what you don't have. Um... You, the faith and love for God that we want our kids to walk in starts with us. So it's, it looks like us practicing, you know, pursuing Jesus, taking responsibility to leading ourselves to pursue Jesus through daily repentance, which, my goodness, we have to practice every day, and and daily engaging with His presence in the Scriptures and in prayer and listening to His Spirit and trying to keep in step with His Spirit. And then the good news that we go to sleep in every single night is that we get to wake up every day to new mercies, and His grace is sufficient, and we get to try all over again, even though we failed like crazy the day before. So if that, that's, that's the first thing we're learning, is if we want to make an impact, it starts with us leading ourselves. Second is thing that we're learning in our parenting journey is that our presence and our patterns say more than our words do. Um, our kids are soaking up our presence, man, soaking it up like sponges. You don't know it, but they are. You ever have that moment where you hear them say something? You're like, I didn't know they were listening. (laughs) They're always listening, (laughs) and they're always watching, and they're always soaking. So they know when Dad's anxious. They know when I'm stressed. They watch how I react to things. They pay attention to our patterns and our habits. Like, you know, how much screen time? How how much? How much time are we reading the Bible? How much time are we watching TV? How often are we sitting down as a family at the meal for to break bread together? Like, they don't miss much, guys. They're paying attention to your patterns. They're paying attention to your presence. And here's the last thing we're learning in our parenting journey is that if we'll just be intentional, there are countless opportunities in the everyday stuff of life to teach your kids the way of Jesus. Everything is a sermon illustration. I mean, countless opportunities. When you're sitting at home, like Deuteronomy 6 says, when you're driving down the road, when it's time to go to bed, when it's time to wake up. Here's one of the biggest opportunities, when you sin against them, when you fail and you sin against them, which happens on the daily, huge opportunity to teach them about our need for Jesus, our need for grace, our need for the cross, our need for forgiveness, like massive. And we just have to be intentional to share our faith and love for Jesus with them in those moments, and it's incredibly messy. It ain't perfect. It's not eloquent. Half the time, I don't know what to say. Several times, I look back and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have said that. But it's okay. It's okay if we're just ordinary at it. God is not looking for perfect, extraordinary parents. He's looking for ordinary parents who know that they need Him, who know that they cannot pull this off in their own power. And if you can wake up every day and live into that, you're going to make a huge eternal impact and be a massive redemptive influence in the lives of your children, in the lives of their children, in the lives of their children, and so forth and so on. That's the first area where God has given us extraordinary influence in a very ordinary place is in the home. I'll be quicker on these other two. Okay, The second area where God has positioned us strategically for kingdom influence is in the context of our work. Man, did you know we spend about a third of our lives at work? So what would happen if we believed that God has strategically placed us, just like he did Daniel, in our jobs, in our vocations to be a redemptive influence for the sake of his gospel and kingdom? If you just brought that mindset to work with you, what, what might God do through that? Dorothy Sayers, I love Dorothy Sayers' work. She was the first woman to graduate from Oxford. And uh, she was a very influential Christian thinker in the 20th century. She was an expert on faith and work and how Christians live out their faith at work. And in her essay, Why Work?, Sayers writes this. We'll put this on the screen. She says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter. So take an intelligent carpenter. Here's how the church typically disciples him. Um, Just don't get drunk. And disorderly, in your leisurely hours, and come to church every Sunday. <laughs> that's, that's what we're giving him. That's how we're discipling him. That's the Christian life. And Monday through Saturday, don't get drunk and don't do anything stupid, and come to church on Sundays, and that's the Christian life. That sounds so boring. That's so dumb. She says, that's how we're discipling the intelligent carpenter. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his faith makes upon his life is that he should make good tables. How about that? What Sayers is getting at is she's just saying, like, it, we should be equipping and encouraging one another as the body of Christ to do what we're doing in our vocations with faithfulness and with excellence. Embracing it as a, as a thing that's playing out in a bigger story that God, God has you here for a reason to build his kingdom, to, to seek first his kingdom, to pray for his kingdom, to proclaim his kingdom. And your work and your vocation is a platform. An ordinary yet extraordinary platform for that. And she's just saying what Paul says, by the way, in Colossians 2. Let's let Paul say it since it's the Scriptures. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for who? Who do you work for? You don't work for the man. You don't work for the guy that gives you your paycheck. You work for King Jesus. Whatever you do as a vocation, King Jesus is your boss. So you work for King Jesus, not human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from King Jesus as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You know what that means? Whatever your job or occupation, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, you build tables, you make shoes, you close sales, you litigate, you medicate, you manage, whatever it is that you do, you do it for the glory of God. That's the ministry God has given you. That's a mission field God has given you. You serve Him faithfully in that, which means very practically, just, just super practically, show up on time and work hard. And don't steal from the company. And don't fudge on your time sheets. And don't be lazy and don't slander your boss and, and bless your coworkers and serve them. Don't step on people's necks to get ahead. You know that's not the way of Jesus. When somebody else gets the promotion over you, celebrate them. And if you don't, if you and if you don't want to celebrate them, you deal with that with Jesus, right? Because you know that you should want to celebrate them. You should like you want to love them, you want to be proud of them. So treat people with kindness and fairness. Be the first to admit that you made a mistake. And do your best at your job. And look for opportunities in the midst of all that, because God's placed you there. You have all kinds of web of relationships there at work and all that. Look for opportunities to share with people the reason for the hope that you have. Why does this dude work so hard? Why is he so kind? Why is he always repenting when he fails? What's, what is different about that, that gal or that guy? What is different? And when they ask you, tell them. It's King Jesus, man, He rules my heart. I want to follow Him, and I believe He's put me here for this purpose. Your vocation, your job is is an extraordinary, ordinary place where God has given you to put a redemptive dent in this dark world. That's why you're there. The last area where God has given us redemptive influence is in the context of our relationships. Home, work, relationships. So who's God placed in your life? For Daniel, it happened to be Nebuchadnezzar. He happens to be rubbing shoulders with a powerful, pretty powerful guy. Um, And members of the royal court and his three buddies. Who has God strategically placed in your life? Right now, let the Spirit bring names to your mind. Whose names, whose faces are you seeing? Family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, people at the gym, people your life intersects with through your kids' sports or school or you fill in the blank. Some of those names and faces that you're seeing, they're already brothers and sisters in Christ. They need your influence. We need each other. We can't do this alone. Some of those names and faces God's putting on your mind right now are, are people that put, God's putting in your life who are far from God. They need your influence. Who are those people? that God has strategically placed in your life. I mean, just write down. I mean, you can do this right now while I'm talking. Take your phone out if you want, whatever. Write down the names of people in your life as they come to you and ask yourself this question. How has God positioned me in this relationship to influence this person's heart toward Jesus? And even if they're already a follower of Jesus, they still need that. I need you... To influence my heart toward Jesus. That's why God's put you in my life. That's why God's put me in your life. Guys, this is what Daniel 2 is all about. God has placed us in a Babylonian culture to be a redemptive influence. To cultivate and shape the culture of his kingdom in this place, right here in northeast Arkansas. It's the reason why we exist as a church. The last question I want to ask, and then we'll close, is this. How do we keep this vision in front of us? How do we keep this vision in front of us? Because it all sounds great. I want to give my life to it. But if you're anything like me, it's, 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 I I understand that all this takes place in the context of the ordinary. But if you're like me, it's easy to get lost in the ordinary because life is a grind. Am I right? So how do, you, how do you keep this vision of, of that God's placed you here for this purpose, how do you keep that in front of you and not get lost in the mundane, ordinary, everyday grind of, of life? Well, let's look at Daniel because Daniel helps us out here, and we'll close here. So let me just ground everything I've said so far in one overarching application. Here it is. What, what we learn from Daniel chapter 2, and this is not simple, but it's actually, it's, it's not easy, but it's simple. It's a simple truth. The key to remaining faithful and making an eternal impact is to see all of your story rooted in the bigger story that is God's story. Daniel just never lost sight of that, man. It's to see all of your story. There's not one little mundane throwaway detail. All of your story is anchored in a bigger story that is God's story. And God is the king of that story. And Daniel has this perspective and this awareness that his story is rooted in God's story. That's why Daniel may be grieving the fact that his life has taken a pretty dark turn. He's now walking in a chapter that he would not have written. His new normal, his new ordinary, is he's been taken from his home, and he's living as a slave to King Nebuchadnezzar. But even in the midst of all that, Daniel has a ton of hope, and he sees purpose in his life because Daniel has not forgotten who the real king is. And who is sovereign over this whole story? And you see this all over Daniel chapter 2. For example, in verses 10 and 11, the astrologers tell Nebuchadnezzar, ain't nobody on earth can do what you're asking us to do. I'm not even sure there's a God out there who can do it. And Daniel says, not so fast. My God's the king. It says in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Let me tell you about him. And then Daniel breaks out into this song. Let me read it because we haven't actually read this yet. Here's what Daniel says. This is just what I'm showing you is that he hasn't lost sight of who the real king is and whose story he's walking in. Here's what he says in in Daniel chapter 2. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings. And raises others up. So who's the real king here? He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. He's just just rooted in a bigger story. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Notice, To Daniel, who's in control here? Who's calling the shots? Wisdom and power belong to Daniel's God. He's the one in charge of times and seasons. He's the one who deposes kings and raises them up. All wisdom and power belong to him. And and light dwells within him, by the way. There's no darkness in him at all. In other words, Daniel knows that Nebuchadnezzar may be the king of the known world, but his God is the king of the universe. And the king of the cosmos. And guys, that is the story Daniel is walking in. Lord, help us to walk in that story. Because it's true. And that's what empowers Daniel to have an incredible influence. And that's what empowers Daniel to win the battle for his identity. And stay faithful. Daniel doesn't allow himself to become intoxicated and indoctrinated with all the other stories and cultural narratives that Babylon's trying to tell them. Guys, do you know we have the same challenge in front of us? Did you know that all day long we are being told stories around the culture, subliminally, sometimes not subliminally, like stories about who God is, where truth is, uh, who we are, how life works best? For example, so many Christians in our culture, some of you in this room watching online, are believing the lies of what we call progressive secularism or radical individualism that says that truth is inside of you and your feelings and your desires and your experience are what is true. You are what you feel and you are what you want, which allows you to redraw the moral boundaries around you. You can do whatever you want with your body, with your money, with your time. And anybody that disagrees with you is a regressive idiot, which by the way, is the definition of intolerance. We've lost the ability to be to be tolerant anymore. That's a whole other sermon I wish I had time to preach. And this has made its way into the church. Some of you, instead of walking in the story Daniel's walking in, you're walking in a story that says, I can follow Jesus and live however I want. I can have the benefits of King Jesus without having to serve him as actual king and Lord. And as long as I ask Jesus into my heart when I was eight or nine, it doesn't matter how I live now. Guys, nothing can be. Who told, who told you that story? Um, some of you are buying into the narrative of your political party and what we call Christian nationalism, and that's where you're finding your, your identity and your hope for this world. Can, I, can you please lean forward for a moment and, and listen to what I'm about to say? Okay, listen. How we govern ourselves in human kingdoms is very important. And we should care deeply about how our faith intersects with our politics. But listen to me very carefully because you see this all over the scriptures. Anytime God's people get too comfortable tying their identity, tying their hope, tying their security, tying their story to a certain nation or kingdom or leader, it never goes well for them. They always compromise, always compromise. And fall away from the way of Jesus. It's a dangerous game. Because you're hitching your wagon to the wrong king. You're pledging your allegiance to the wrong kingdom. You have forgotten the bigger story that we're walking in as exiles sent here to pursue and proclaim God's kingdom. Which in the end is actually the only true kingdom that exists. And you see that in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I haven't told you what the dream is yet, but look at verses 29 through 35. Here it is. Nebuchadnezzar dreams about a great statue. And it's got a head of gold and shoulders of silver and a belly of bronze and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Can you see this big statue? Gold head, bronze shoulders, or silver shoulders, big old belly of bronze, this big old plated big statue Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees. And then Daniel says, God showed me something else you saw in the dream, bro. Here's something else you saw in the dream. And here's what it says in verse 34 directly. While you were watching this statue, Nebuchadnezzar, in your dream, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor on a hot summer day, and the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue, it grew into a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That was your dream, O king. There's a rock coming, Daniel says. It's going to smash this statue into a zillion pieces. And this rock is going to grow into a mountain that takes over the whole earth. Well, what does that mean, Nebuchadnezzar says. Tell me, give me the interpretation. What in the world does that mean? And so Daniel says, well, here's what it means. Each element of the statue represents an earthly kingdom. You're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, which means that you're the king of the world for now. The other pieces of the statue represent other kingdoms that will succeed you. And throughout the story of human history, there will be many kings and nations rise and fall. But Daniel says in verse 44 that God is going to send a rock into this world that's going to establish a new kingdom that, quote, will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This rock will become a mountain that fills The earth. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to put my hope in any kind of leader or kingdom, it better be that one. How is Daniel able to withstand the pull of Babylon? How is he able to remain faithful and live with a sense of mission and purpose in exile? Because Daniel's hope is in this bigger vision and in this bigger story. And ultimately, Daniel's hope is in the rock that God says is going to come. And we know from the rest of the story who the rock is. The rock is King Jesus. Spoiler alert. We know this from Matthew, Peter, Paul, all pick up on this idea that Jesus is the rock, the chief cornerstone, the foundation on which God's going to demolish all earthly kingdoms and he's going to build his kingdom on the earth. And it's at this point in the story you realize that this is both good news and bad news for us. It's it's good news because in the story, God's sending a king and a kingdom that's good, just, holy, and it's going to bring redemption and restoration to the world. It's bad news on the other hand because if we're honest, like Nebuchadnezzar, we've all tried to build our own tiny kingdoms. We've all tried to become the center of our own story. We've all tried to rewrite the story around us. We've all tried to use our influence and our power to build up and establish our own kingdoms. And the bad news, Daniel says, is that Jesus the rock is coming to smash your kingdom. And he says, this is trustworthy and true. This will happen. So this leaves us in a place of longing for good news. And here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Daniel's looking forward to this rock who's going to come and he's going to smash your kingdom. But what this rock does is he does something that is so unthinkable. The way he comes and smashes your kingdom is he allows himself to be smashed in your place. He does what no other king, certainly not an unstable king like Nebuchadnezzar, would ever do. He gives his life for the rebels. King Jesus comes and and establishes his kingdom by living the, the perfect sinless life we failed to live and dying the death that we deserve to die, on a Roman cross to pay for our sins so that we can be forgiven and we can have life with God. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be the king, conquering sin, death, and hell in our place and establishing his permanent kingdom here on earth forever. So here's what that means. Your, your only hope for forgiveness and salvation on, in this life is to put your hope in that story, to believe in that story, to embrace that story because it's true. To put your hope in Jesus the rock and to build your life on him. Root your story in that story. And if you're in this room and you're a disciple of Jesus, it's the same is true for you. There is no other answer. It's build your life on that rock, submit your life to that king, root your life in that story. And then you'll be faithful and you'll make a kingdom impact. And to remind us of that, every week we close with communion. We take this little, uh, this little you know, contraption that you have there in your, ch- in your chair. It's got juice in it. It's got some bread-like substance in there. And what this represents is this, the bread represents the body of King Jesus that was broken for us. And the, the juice represents his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So that we can be dethroned and we can submit ourselves to him and we can find life in him and in his loving rule. And if that's you, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, we encourage you to participate in this meal. Celebrate with us. And if that's not you, we're so glad you're here. If you wouldn't say that Jesus is your king and that you're walking in his story, you've submitted your life to him, then we're glad you're here, but we would encourage you, don't participate in this meal. Uh, it's, this is a symbol of, of, of our faith, of those who have put their faith in Jesus. And so our invitation for you would instead to be consider, what is standing in the way of me bowing the knee to Jesus? Like, what is standing in the way of me, of me building my life on, on the rock that is Jesus? Of me trusting that He is who He says He is, and He is the good news that I've been searching for my whole life. And if you want to talk more about that or think through that, I'll be available after the service. Jared, Luke, um, Robert, our staff. I mean, anybody anybody here can help you process that. We would love to do that with you. So, um, once you join me in prayer as the band comes? Let's just pray. And let's ask God to continue to have his way with us this morning. So, Father, I do ask right now that, you know, I've said a lot of things. And I just pray that you would cut through all the distractions and make this one thing very clear, that you're the king and we're not, and that's good news for us. I just get a sense that there's someone watching online or someone here in this room, and I'm not trying to manipulate, I just feel very strongly that there's there's someone watching that's feeling such a resistance right now in this moment to surrendering their life to you, to repenting of their sins, to admitting they're a sinner and just actually taking you at your word that you are real and you are gracious and you died for them, you rose for them, you love them, that you will forgive them, that you can be for them who you say you are. I just pray right now that you would remove any resistance. You would break their heart. You would help them to come to a place where they bow the knee to King Jesus and they surrender their life this morning. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would send us out just with a new kingdom mindset, just like seeing that, I mean, we're walking in this drama that's just this massive story that's unfolding. And it's, nothing, it's not an accident that we're here. Like, just like Daniel, like we, just, we find ourselves where we find ourselves, and you're up to something. So help us to find what you're up to and just participate with you in that and be faithful and make a difference. Use us, God. We're here. We, we, want, we want our church to make a lasting impact on our city. That's why we're here. So do it, we pray in your name. Amen.